This is the GeoVersive Earth Intelligence Podcast. Hi, everybody. This is Don Shelby, and this is GeoVersive Earth Intelligence, and I'll be your host. And as usual, we will have Joseph Robertson, who's the Global Strategy Director for Citizens Climate Education and the founder of GeoVersive and the Commission Director for the Food System Economics Commission, and Myra Jackson, who helped develop the UN 17 Sustainable Development Goals, SDGs. And she's a diplomat of the biosphere, as well as remaining a UN representative and focal point on climate change. And she's an expert on harmony with nature. Thank you very much for tuning into our third podcast. I need to make a special apology to most of you because the first two were kind of long, and thank you for waiting through those. We will make sure that our podcasts are shorter in the future. Joe has said that this podcast is a window into the frontier work of imagining, designing, and securing a future of sustainable health and resilience, and it's open to all. And Myra has said in past podcasts that we're building a conversation and building a community. Welcome to both of you. Thanks, Don. It's great to be here. Another day. Another day. (laughs) Welcome aboard. Okay. Now, Joe has said that this, at least in part, is a podcast that is designed to secure a future of sustainable health. I want to start there because every news channel in the world, every person in uh, the planet is talking about covid And I think we should talk about COVID today, but we should talk about it in a way that is different than the mass media, that we need to go either deeper or go sideways on this issue. So Myra, why don't you take the lead? Because it was your suggestion that brought us around to the idea of COVID as it fits into a world of resilience and sustainability. Yes, I'm happy to take that on. I I do see and feel really feeling that it is an evolutionary driver that gives us an opportunity to not only literally take pause, but to go deeper. You just suggested the opportunity of going deeper. The conversations that have been illuminated as a result of COVID is changing our world. I have never been entreated to participate so deeply in transformation as I've been able to in these recent months. COVID is changing us, Don. Tell me how. We're thinking. We're thinking with our whole body. We've got slowed down time going on here, and we can now see the systems that have been disrupted. The systems that we've known have not allowed us to bring our best forward. And we're seeing those systems hitting a wall. And as they break down and reveal their inherent folly, we're not collapsing altogether. We're rising. We're rising to what we're being summoned into. And that's to be a part creatively, a part of feeding and nourishing what we value and building a new world. Joe, how does this fit into resilience? And I know you'll want to bring in the evolutionary forces, both of nature and of the human being, which is part, of course, of nature. 
You know, I think what we're experiencing is a planetary scale emergency. Just today, I heard somebody say, this is the first such emergency of the Anthropocene, the time when human beings shape the earth, the geological record. After that, we're going to experience much more intense fallout from climate. We're going to experience the collapse of natural systems in ways we haven't seen before. And these things will have ripple effects through society. Those ripple effects have an evolutionary quality to them. So when you have a major shock of this scale and it involves multiple systems, what we're seeing right now condensed into weeks and months is the kind of thing that would unfold over years when planetary systems are under intense stress. And what that means is things don't just happen and then go back. Things happen. And as Myra is saying, things get changed as a result of what happened. That shock can jolt many different systems so that they can't just go back to before. And what then happens is you have a cascade of effects. In a society that is resilient, that cascade of effects is likely to be positive. Even if you have a shock, you're able to build back from that shock, get back to equilibrium and reset your footing so that you can start running at full speed again, start doing the things you know how to do, and you will have learned and you will have innovated. But if you have a society that is not resilient, experiencing multiple major shocks that have this evolutionary quality to them, so effects are cascading through, you can't just go back to equilibrium, you run the risk of collapse. Industry, economy, food, climate, ecology, biology on land, biology in the sea, these are not all disconnected. They are distinct enough we can describe them as different, but they're not disconnected. And resilience has to be something where we include some awareness of how these interactions affect each other, some awareness of how these interactions affect our health and well-being. Give me some practical examples of that. Give me not metaphor, but show me where in the past human beings have responded to these kinds of forces and come out on the positive side. Well, I think the history of the 1918 flu pandemic is seen differently by different people, but it's a concrete example of an absolutely devastating health emergency a pandemic that spread across the world that affected people everywhere. Tens of millions of people died. But one of the legacies of that pandemic was an incredible intensification of health-related research and discovery and public policy throughout the 20th century all over the world, arguably led to different thinking about how we should deal as societies with hunger how should we respond? How can we build infrastructure and supply lines that make it easier to prevent catastrophic hunger in the midst of something like that? And that was used again, that kind of integrated response was used again after World War II. It helped in the quest to develop vaccines. It helped in the quest to develop uh, strategies for the eradication of uh, polio and other diseases. All of those public health wins 
the coordination of public health policy across the world, scientific research, uh, the sharing of information across borders for the benefit of public health, all of those things were ultimately achievements that we learned we needed to get on top of because of what happened in 1918. And we did. Yeah. The human beings responded that way. Now, Tried to break that down for me, Myra, in the sense of uh, nature's role, because we could lay COVID-19 and any of the zoonotic uh, diseases that have arisen in the past century uh, at the feet of uh, Mother Nature, in other words. But how can we use nature's intelligence, Earth intelligence, to help us overcome these problems? I think what's really important to get a handle on here is that what's really broken is the axiomatic relationship that we have with nature. The way in which we we do work with parts, not wholes. I think Ebola was one of those good examples of a people in Liberia and in the region around the Ivory Coast who returned to some of their traditional knowledge in order to get a handle on Ebola. They were really seized and attacked in a militarized fashion to deal with Ebola, and that got pushed back. Once there was an understanding, this way of communicating was not going to foster the kind of cooperation and adjustment to what was happening in the environment around the eating of bushmeat, the drought, and all those other factors that were leading up to an environment where such a virus would take hold. And we have to expect that in a toxic environment, nature is going to respond to create a scenario that restores balance. And so this transfer of zoonotic diseases that has been, let me tell you, it has been clearly on the, uh, on the radar and we haven't paid attention to it until it became reality. But it was a part of one of those converging dynamic realities that we were, that was being discussed and that we were being presented with. We knew it was coming. And it's coming because of the imbalance in the natural world that's been created by our consumption, our behavior. So this is a whole system response by a living organism that knows how to adjust. And so, of course, here we are. But that interdependency and that interrelatedness is something that we have to really begin to, to work with, you know, as a part of our, our approach, our framework for looking at our challenges. We cannot do it absent of that nature that we're a part of. Joe, is there work being done in the area of resilience when it comes to diseases? We often speak of resilience as it has to do with climate change. And I suppose there is a climate change element within the uh, COVID-19, or the SARS-CoV-2. But is there an element of resilience that we can talk about? Yes, Don. So 
there are a few things there. First of all, uh, climate disruption is a force that degrades our resilience against things like SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19. Um, some of the effects of, of climate change actually make it more likely that we're going to see zoonotic uh, disease transfer from animals to humans. As we've seen global heating intensify over the last two decades, we've seen three zoonotic coronavirus disease transfers, SARS-CoV-1 in 2002, MERS in 2012, and now SARS-CoV-2 in 2019 and 20. We had never seen that kind of thing before with a coronavirus. The only other coronaviruses are, are things that cause the common cold, um, and they're not zoonotic. They don't come from the animal world, at least not in our living memory or in our recorded history. The way that we use land is one of the things that creates this risk. So climate change is a result of how we use land in part, but it also causes us to respond. So if the quality of agricultural land is degraded, we then go and seek new land to grow things. That causes us to encroach into wild areas, to degrade ecosystems, to undermine biodiversity and disrupt the balance of natural systems. What that means is, you know, we think of climate migrants as human beings, but long before human beings become climate migrants, we're disrupting ecosystems, causing habitats to shift, causing animals to look for the kind of food that they know or that they can benefit from. And as we disrupt these natural systems, we bring ourselves closer into contact with essentially with life forms that we are not familiar with, that we are not biochemically familiar with. That increases the risk of zoonotic disease transfer. Um, and just a final point on resilience here, the way that we respond to this crisis is also going to determine whether we increase or decrease our risk of another such pandemic. When, when you see massive disruption of the food system because economies are collapsing, supply chains are disrupted, people are getting poorer who are already poor, hunger is increasing. This year, it's expected that as many as 125 million Americans will need some kind of food assistance or to deal somehow with food insecurity. Um, at the same time, it's expected that over 270 million people across the world will experience acute hunger this year. That's twice what was expected to happen. Um, acute hunger sort of means on the brink of starvation or starving. These are major catastrophic events. And as countries try to shore up their food supply, the natural choices are start getting more land to be productive, start cutting into forests, start changing how you use natural resources. Those are things that enhance the risk. Another of the side effects is that when people are too poor to do those things and they just have to go and find food, the approach to finding food that is that involves consuming bush meat or wild, you know, caught meat increases. And when that increases, you also increase this risk. So our response to this crisis has to be integral. It has to be whole. We have to be thinking about not just doing the thing that makes sense in the moment, but with a much more uh, inclusive understanding of the ramifications of these choices.
Myra, I'm going to give you the closing words on what our marching orders should be with a view to the conversation we're trying to have with this public. Well, you might be shocked by a little of what I have to say, but one of those those areas that are quite important, uh, some countries have begun to take the lead on, and that is really establishing well-being, well-being of nature, well-being of people, and dealing with climate. So Canada, you know, has the Canadian Well-Being Index. Other countries are following suit to look at how do we take approaches beyond GDP so that we have signals in the in in our world system that allow us to see where we begin going off track. Instead, we need those signals that help us restore where harm has been done toward living in harmony with nature. Recently, someone was saying, you know, what seems to be underway is really a decolonization of people and nature, that in some way we have been saddled with this idea of separation throughout all of our life systems. And so to bring those back into harmony means getting underneath all of the assumptions and algorithms that we operate within today. And for that, I am grateful that we still have indigenous worldviews out there, that we can draw upon people who still have a sense of this kind of deep kinship and friendship within the community of life. Myra Joe, thank you very much for this podcast on Geoverse of Earth Intelligence. And uh, we'll be back with more conversations in uh, subsequent episodes. Thank you very much, Joe. Thank you, Don. And thank you very much, Myra. Mm, you're a f- I'm a fan. <laughs> I'm a fan of this podcast. And I hope everyone gets a chance to listen to it. And if you have suggestions, you can go to ask at geoversive.net and supply any information you wish to supply, corrections if you wish, direction if you wish, suggestions for future podcasts. Thank you very much for being with us. We'll see you next week.